So after spending five weeks in a sermon series about rest and margin and not pushing too, too hard, uh, we're starting a sermon series on work. <clears throat> uh, seems appropriate. Um, no, the idea behind the on-the-job <clears throat> training sermon series, and this is 12, 13 weeks, it's takes us all the way up uh, almost to Advent, to Christmas time, which is crazy to think about. Um, but the idea is that disciples of Jesus are um, not just students in a classroom. Uh, disciples are truly apprentices of a rabbi, D- apprentices that learn uh, the job or the tasks or the way of living that the rabbi or the teacher um, knows and does. So to be a disciple means to do what your teacher does. And that's what the sermon series is about, learning to do, to live the way that Jesus lives and lived and taught his followers to live. To make a disciple, as you can see, these banners here taught, remind us that we as the church are to go and make disciples, not only to be disciples, to make disciples. So to make disciples is to be a teacher in the way that Jesus was a teacher, right? And so each week during the series, we're going to look at uh, not only what's being taught, information-wise, but we're going to look at what it means and like how we shape our lives and what practices we uh, participate in, how to be faithful to what Jesus told us to do and how we share our faith with others. So that's kind of where we're going over the next several months, honestly. Um, But as we get started this morning, I have a strange question for us. Um, How many of you remember MySpace? (laughs) Oh, we got a few, more than I was expecting, honestly. It was such a niche thing. So those who don't know, MySpace, it's an internet thing, um, kind of the social media like Facebook, um, but it was from a more innocent time when we actually thought that we would spend time making a page for ourselves and other people would want to come and spend time on our page. And so we'd spend time, you'd have your own page and you'd decorate it how you want and you'd put all types of information and all types of moving things, animations, and information about your hobbies, or all, all types, whatever you want. It becomes your page, and there's this assumption that other people were going to come and spend time uh, with your, your page, uh, your space. Um, it was designed, uh, my page, I had a MySpace page, um, my page was designed for the specific purpose of letting people know how awesome I was. Like that was, I went into this mentality, I'm going to show people how, uh, how amazing uh, I was. So motorcycle racing was my main theme. Um, and so I had a video of other people racing because I had never done that. <clears throat> but I liked it and that was awesome to like it. So I had a video there. I had a playlist. You could actually put a list of songs and people would pop up on your page and they could listen to the music that you've selected. I think my playlist had like two or three hours worth of music because I assume people are just going to open this page and sit there for two or three hours and listen to all my... I, I don't understand the logic behind it, but that's what I did. I had a playlist of, of some of my favorite music. Um, another thing that was kind of crazy about, about MySpace was uh, if you're on social media today, you have friends, right? Like you can connect with people. MySpace was unique because not only could you have friends, but you could rank them. Do you remember this? <laughs> one through eight or one through 10 or whatever it was, and you could actually move them. Like, well, you were a two last week, but now you're four. Like, you go on your friend's page to see where they were ranking, or maybe you're not even on their top 10, and now that's an issue we have to talk about. Um, so I don't know what the purpose of that was other than to cause trouble, but that was the thing. Like, you could rank your friends. Seems like a great idea. 
Um, but like I said, my page was designed to show everybody how awesome I was, and so part of my page, I had a quote, quotation by a man named Cato the Elder, right? Because that's how you show people you're awesome. You have a, a quote from a man named Cato the Elder. Um, his, his real name, his given name, was Marcus Porcius Cato. This sounds important, right? Like, you'd be impressed coming to my page and seeing this. He lived about 200 years before Jesus as part of the Roman uh, Empire. He was a military leader, he was a politician, he was a historian. Um, so he, he was prominent in the Roman Empire, uh, but he didn't start out with great uh, background. He wasn't born into nobility, he wasn't born into the upper elite of society, but he worked his way up through the military and became prominent um, that way. And so he had some great quotations that are attributed to him. So if you uh, did a search, uh, a Google search for Cato the Elder, you could find many great things that he said, uh, such as, uh, we cannot control the evil tongues of others, but a good life enables us to disregard them. So people can talk whatever they want about you, but if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, it doesn't matter. I like that. Um, an angry man opens his mouth and shuts his eyes. Uh, he said that after he went and observed Detroit Tiger fans. Um, oh, I know, right? Um, I was debating which team I was going to go with, and I landed on the Tigers. But yeah, uh, he opens his mouth and shuts his eyes. <laughs> uh, in doing nothing, men learn to do evil. So passivity allows for evil to exist. Uh, lighter is the wound foreseen. I like that one as an overthinker. Uh, he's saying, basically, uh, you're hurt less by the thing you know that's coming um, than the, the surprise. So that's what he's saying. So as an overthinker, like that justifies my overthinking. <clears throat> he also said, and many of you probably heard this one, old age isn't so bad when you consider the alternative. Right? So that, that goes back to Cato. Um, the worst ruler is one who cannot rule himself. I think that's a good one. Um, those, are, those are just some quotes from Cato the Elder. I didn't have any of those on my page. I had a different one. And the quote that I had uh, came from, so like I said, he didn't grow up in the upper echelon, the elite. He kind of worked his way into it. And so as such, he was never fully accepted into that elite culture. Um, so there came a point in time, Cato the Elder, this great military leader, this great uh, politician leader in the community, um, in the empire, um, found out that somebody else was getting a, a statue or some sort of honor. They were celebrating somebody else's victory or somebody else's work instead of his. And they asked him, what do you think about so-and-so getting the statue or so-and-so getting this honor? And, and this is what he said, and this is the quote that I had on my page. Cato the Elder said this, I had far rather that people would ask why there is no statue of me then ask why there is one. <laughs> and I, I, I like that because of the snarkiness, right? Like, he would much rather have somebody look at his life and say, well, why aren't you celebrated more? You're doing great things. Then somebody else see a statue and say, well, why does he get a statue, right? Um, so the point is that it's better to humble yourselves and let somebody else honor you than for you to honor yourself and have others knock you down a few pegs. It's better for people to think you deserve a statue and not have one than think you don't deserve the statue that you somehow managed to get. And in the Bible, Jesus teaches his disciples something similar. His followers, he teaches them, his apprentices, 
right? Those who are learning to live the way that Jesus lives. He teaches them not to seek glory and not to seek honor. In a culture that functioned, relied heavily on status and honor as kind of the main uh, economy of things, status and honor was how you navigated this culture, Jesus was teaching his followers not to desire places of honor. And so that's where we're going to jump into our scripture text this morning. <laughs> It'll be on the screens, um, but Luke 14, uh, we're going to read verse 1, and then we're going to jump through verses 7 to 11. Um, like I said, it's on the screens, but if you want to turn in your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, there's some scattered under the chairs around. Um, there's a stack of them there, the red, orange, and blue type looking things. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, take that. That's yours. Um, we don't want anybody not to have a Bible, so if you need one, take it. Um, but Luke 14, verse 1, and then 7 through 11. It says, on one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. We're going to jump to, to 7 now. When he noticed how the guest chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited, to sit, uh, invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited, you, invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place, and then in disgrace you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, pray with me, if you will. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray today that the Spirit would gather our minds, that they may be one with you. Open our ears so that they may hear your word. Soften our hearts that they may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. Um, like I alluded to just a moment ago, in the ancient world, honor, status, your place in society, your place in culture uh, was very much a regular part of life. So where you were, what your status was, dictated um, what social circles you could participate in, what events, where you were allowed to go, where you were not allowed to go, what your role was in society. Um, there wasn't a concept as much of upward mobility. Um, it was more of your class, was more of a locked thing, and it determined what your life was going to look like. And part of this honor culture was the idea that the closer you got to important people, the more important you were, right? So the, the closer you got to, the, to, to those in power or those who were celebrated or those with status, the higher your status was. And this played out in very specific and real situations like banquets and festivals. We see this in the story that, that Jesus, uh, the story of Jesus we just looked at. You know, depending on where you sat indicated what your value and status was. And so people would want to sit closest to the head of the table or closest to the most important people. But if somebody else more important came in, you would get embarrassed and told you're not really that important. 
This was their everyday regular activity. This is how their culture functioned. You, you knew your place. It was reinforced by the, the structure, the way that the culture worked. We can see remnants of this honor culture things living yet today. If you've ever been part of a, a corporate uh, business meeting, um, you know that the most important person sits in a particular place and the more important people want to sit near that person and the, the kind of, if you don't have a seat at the table, you probably aren't as important as the people that are sitting at the head of the table. Um, or maybe even like wedding banquets, wedding receptions, right? The seating arrangement. If you're, if you're at the kids' table in the next room over, you probably don't rank real high with the family. I hate to break it to you if that's been your experience, but if you're right up by the, the head table, you know, maybe you're closer to the family. They wanted you to... But anyways, we, we rank, going back to the MySpace thing, we rank our friends. <laughs> um, but we can see some of the remnants of this honor culture, right? The closer you are to the important or powerful people, the more important or powerful you are. Um, and as big of a deal as that might seem in certain business activities or family engagements, in the ancient culture, it was much less about one's role, you know, like, oh, you're the VP of finance, you sit here, you're the, the per- in charge of HR, you sit there. Like, it's not, it, I mean, it's, it's much more about one's value and worth than what their title was. Um, and so the reality is, in this, this few verses from Luke 14, Jesus isn't trying to teach us how to sit around a table at a dinner party. I mean, it seems pretty practical. This is what he's, he's telling us to do, but he's, he's teaching us something more. He's teaching his followers, his apprentices, his disciples, a larger lesson than how to choose a seat at a table. Jesus is trying to teach us what our attitude should be towards ourselves and towards others. And why does Jesus need to teach this lesson? Well, sometimes we Christians might start to think a little too highly of ourselves. It happens. Sometimes we are all tempted to put ourselves in places of honor, to put ourselves in the most important uh, seats at the table. For some of us, it's a fleeting moment, just in a, in a moment, I want to sit by this person, or I want to be near this, or I want this, this is important to me. So for some of us, it might just be a moment of, well, I'm really proud of what I accomplished or something, and I want the recognition. For others, some of our time and energy, <clears throat> maybe too much of our time and energy goes into chasing and pursuing positions of honor and status. Um, Collectively, as a church culture, we might think being a Christian might make us better than others. So before we go any further looking at what Jesus is telling us to do, let's spend a moment asking why does Jesus need to teach us this? Why do we have a tendency, temptation, to find ourselves in these places of honor? Now, I'm sure some of you have met people that that. And it's not nobody in here, of course, but uh, people who obviously want to be the center of attention wherever they are. They need to be in that, that seat that is closest to the head of the table. They, they want to be the best. They have to be the best. They have to prove that they're the best at everything that they do, that they always have to win, even if nobody else knows they're playing the game. Right? You know, have you ever... Um, uh, little kids do this a lot. I, I finished my juice first. What, who, was it a race? I, you know, but there's those types of things where even when there isn't a competition going on, they find some way to compete. 
Um, and those actions truly come from an idea that I'm, I'm, I'm maybe better than everybody else and I need to prove it to others so people realize how great I am or something. Um, and they might even think that the goal of every relationship or every organization or event or whatever might be to, to demonstrate how great they are or to improve their status, uh, whatever. The words of Jesus warn against this type of behavior, pretty, pretty direct. Like Jesus is just saying, don't, don't act out of pride, don't put yourself in places of honor, um, you will be humbled. <coughs> the Bible says uh, pride is connected to a great fall, right? It just happens. But today I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about those people. I don't want to talk about that specifically. Um, I think we all know that self-centered attention-seeking is contrary uh, to the teachings of Jesus. I want to focus less on those people today. Um, although, if that's you, I don't know. Um, work on being humble. Spend some time in prayer asking God to, to work in your life or whatever. But again, I'm not, that's not the point of the message today. <coughs> um, my experience has been that most people who are seeking places of honor um, aren't trying to build statues for themselves. They're not trying to announce to the world that they're the best or the greatest. Um, but rather, uh, especially in Christian circles, when we're competing, throwing elbows, trying to get in the places of honor to get recognition, credit, whatever, um, we're working to overcome insecurities about not being good enough. Uh, we seek places of honor as a place of validation and acceptance. We just want somebody to let us know that we belong here, that we're good enough, right? And so that, that first group, uh, it's easy to, to judge and condemn the arrogant and the proud people, but this one's a little bit more difficult because you realize it's coming from a place of needing to belong the deep-seated question that, that creates anxiety and fear of, am I good enough? Do I really belong here? Deep down, we're afraid that we don't measure up and we don't have what it takes, and so we, we're seeking recognition or places of honor for validation. We seek that seat of honor at the banquet as a way to overcome those fears. We just want someone to tell us that we're good enough, that we're okay and accepted for who we are, we just want to be recognized and acknowledged that, hey, we're welcome at this table. Have you ever heard of a, a thing called imposter syndrome? It's, it's kind of one of these, these things that kind of has worked its way through our culture. It's not super popular, but in certain cultures, certain niches of our society, it's become a thing. Um, imposter syndrome is this idea that even the most skilled, the most uh, talented people, when they find themselves getting where they want to be, feel like they're a fraud or a phony. They don't belong. They're not really supposed to be there. I, I, I'll confess, the first time people started calling me pastor, I'm like, I'm not a pastor. I mean, I had the degree, I had the, the job, I had the title, but there was something about the position that like, I, you know, I don't belong. Um, and you hear uh, interviews with, with celebrities or professional athletes or uh, the experts in their fields all over the place saying, you know, I just, there's times where doubt that I actually belong here um, creeps in. 
There's these people that feel like, you know, I got here, I accomplished my dream, but I didn't do it the right way, or I lucked into it, or, or something. It's like I don't belong here. That's imposter syndrome. Where you're starting a new job, you've gotten a promotion, or you're working on a new task, and instead of celebrating it, you're worried that you're not really up for it. Or maybe you found yourself achieving a goal. Oh, I want, I've been working on this for a long time, but it didn't happen the way that I expected it to, so maybe I kind of cheated, maybe it doesn't count as much, it doesn't feel legitimate. So deep down, we're looking for signs that we have worth. That even though we have the title, the position, the education, whatever it might be, uh, we might seek a place of honor so that others know we aren't frauds, we belong here. Validation that we're doing it right. And that, that's a whole thing, and you can do all kinds of study on imposter syndrome, and that's, again, not the point of this uh, message today either. The point I bring that up for, though, is if that gets mixed in with church, things can get really messy. When people are afraid that they aren't good enough in their faith, what if I doubt? What if I fear? What if there's moments where I, I'm not sure of everything? The idea of uh, a guy raising from the dead three days later or um, walking on water or healing sick people. Maybe that just seems a little too far-fetched sometimes. Or maybe, maybe uh, you've been praying faithfully about something uh, that you're worried about, your health or a job or something, and it just isn't getting fixed fast enough. And you're like, well, maybe I don't have enough faith. Or maybe I'm, I'm praying wrong. Maybe I don't know how to pray. Maybe I don't know enough of the Bible. I'm a Christian, but I, man, if somebody asked me to quote my favorite scripture, I'm going with Jesus wept, right? Because that's... <laughs> the short one, right? I know two words, I got that one. Um, maybe I just don't know enough, or, or maybe I'm not great at following the rules. I don't, I don't want to be a troublemaker, but I don't know all the rules. So I'm just going to kind of keep my head down. So you're, you're a Christian, you're a Jesus follower, but where there's this deep-seated fear that maybe I'm not doing enough, I don't know enough. And so we seek affirmation, we seek validation, And so we are tempted at times to do the thing that Jesus warns against in Matthew chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. He just, this is the one command to his followers. He says, do not practice your works of righteousness for others to see, for you'll get no reward from God. Jesus says, you'll get a, a reward from people. If you're putting on a show for people, you'll get a reward from people that you're trying to impress. And that reward is the fact that some people might be impressed. You wanted people to think you're important, and as a result of our actions, maybe some people think we're important. We're seeking recognition and honor, and maybe we've got it, but Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6, maybe not much else has happened. That's not the reward you should be seeking, says Jesus. And so when there's fear or insecurity in the life of the Christian, sometimes it shows up, often it shows up, as someone having to be uh, recognized, acknowledged, have a title, be in the spotlight, or be in charge of something. For some, and you probably know, again, have experienced these, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you probably have experienced this. There are people that will only do something if it's very public. Uh, but a good deed that no one will know about isn't as inviting. If someone has to get the credit for what the whole team achieved, 
it's usually a sign that there's either great pride or great insecurity there. If you've ever been part of a group project at school or a group project at work or part of some sort of family planning thing and there's that one person that is just like, I'm going to let everybody know how great I did. It's either pride or insecurity working there, right? Anything we do from a place of insecurity um, kind of shows up in, in unhealthy ways. So, for example, another thing that might come about when we are insecure or, or unsure of ourselves is that we will try to mimic what we think good Christians are doing. We mimic what they say and what they do. We pay attention to these people, and, and, and there's a positive from that. Maybe you say, oh, this person over here, they're a senior saint, and I want them to show me how they've managed to be faithful all these years. Um, I'd love for them to mentor me and teach me and disciple me in the way they just seem so happy. They seem so peaceful. They've been through such hard situations in life, but still experience joy. Like, we look at them and say, I want to be like them. And that's a great response. But it can also be bad if it's like, well, let me just learn how to copy what that person is doing and give the appearance that I'm just like them without doing the work or understanding how they have spent those years confronting their own sins, confronting their own uh, spiritual formation, their own baggage. And so sometimes it shows up just as religious jargon being used, but in a forced way. Nothing says I'm a good Christian like using religious sounding phrases, right? <laughs> but what happens when so much of our energy and our effort goes into hiding from our fears, trying to show that we are actually good enough to belong at the table, to prove that we are, uh, have worth, have value. Well, a few things happens. Uh, again, we find ourselves wanting to be in the seat of honor at the banquet to compensate for our fears and insecurities. If I'm afraid that I don't belong, my natural response is going to be, I'm gonna wanna be in the important spot so people acknowledge that I'm worthwhile. We don't want to be vulnerable. If there's you know, doubt, fear, insecurities happening, we don't want other people to see that. And so we, we, admit, we don't want to admit our shortcomings. We don't want to confess our sins because then everyone will know that we aren't perfect. Well, they know, <laughs> right? But we get so caught up managing how we might look to others that we can lose our ability to see where others are at. And this is the point of this whole this whole sermon, this isn't an opportunity for me to critique or to call out anything specifically other than the fact that it is something that is inhibiting us from being faithful to the mission that Jesus has called us to. Right? The, the premise of this sermon series is Jesus is teaching his disciples not how to be good people, but how to be a follower of Jesus, how to live the way that he lived, to be an apprentice to be disciples who make disciples, right? To be the church. And so what happens is we get caught up worrying, managing, putting energy and effort into managing our appearance, our insecurities, that we can lose our ability to see where others are at. We lose our ability to see what other people are wrestling with or searching for. If we spend our energy and attention on making sure people think we are good enough, 
then we have very little energy and attention to expend on the other people in our lives. And so for this new sermon series in which we are learning how to be disciples who not only believe things about Jesus, but live according to the way of Jesus, it's important for us to pay attention to the things that cause us to focus on ourselves instead of God or on our neighbors. Because not only is putting others first a good thing to do as a disciple of Jesus, but it's the first step in inviting others to become a disciple too. And so that's the point of this, this whole sermon series, and that's the point of this sermon, is if we are back here wrestling with our own sense of value and our own sense of worth, if we are concerned about how close to the head of the table we get, we're not even engaging with the mission that God has given us to invite other people to sit at the table too. Right? It's very hard to invite someone into the place of honor. It's very hard to make room for somebody else at the table when we want to keep that place for ourselves. It's difficult to celebrate somebody else's growth, their successes, their victories, their new faith. It's difficult to celebrate that for them if we see them as a threat to our position. You can't invite someone to a place that hasn't been prepared for them. And this is the one truth, if I could put it into one sentence today, summarizing everything that, that this message is about, this is it on the screen. We can't invite someone to a place that we want to keep for ourselves. And so when we're afraid and insecure and worried about our own place at the table, what people think and, and based off of uh, how close we are to certain things or how celebrated we are or what our titles are and all those types of things, we, we can't make room for other people. So that's the truth that, that I want us walking away with. If you forget everything else I said today, um, especially the MySpace part, we can't invite someone to a place that we want to keep for ourselves. And so if we want to be faithful to what God is calling us to do and to be as a church, um, and that being go and make disciples in all the world, if we want others to become disciples, to know that they are welcome and included in our community of faith, we have to make space for them. If we want to make them feel included and part of the family, we've got to get past of the temptation or the desire or the need to make church primarily about ourselves. And so we can't walk into a church service and think, that I'm the most important person attending that day. We can't go out into the community with an attitude that I'm better than these people that I'm trying to reach, that we're the good ones. If, if our church is going to fulfill the mission that God is calling us to, and if you've been part of First Church for a while, you've heard me say this, if you're transitioning over from hope, you're gonna hear this a lot, but I believe that the mission of our church is this, to be a church that loves God, loves others, and serves the world. So while also inviting and equipping and empowering others to love God, right? We want people that currently don't know God to come to fall in love with him and enter into a relationship with him, right? We want others to love God. We want 
others to learn to love one another in Christian fellowship and community. People that aren't part of the family, we want them to become part of the family. And then to enter into Christian service, to serve others, people that maybe are worried about accumulating stuff for themselves to become generous people the way that God is generous. And so if we're gonna be faithful to that mission, love God, love others, and serve the world, we've got to start moving ourselves a little bit farther away from the head of the table, inviting others to take those seats of honor, making the, the, the new person, the outsider, the, the stranger, the most celebrated guest we could have. What do you think would happen if our church developed a reputation in our community as a church that is deliberately seeking and making room for those who aren't currently disciples of Jesus? What do you, what do you think would happen if, if word got out in our community that said, if you, if you needed something, if you were lost and looking for help and you walked in these doors, those people there, those Nazarenes, were gonna make you feel at home. Even if you don't have any idea how their church works or what they, the, the Bible says, you don't have to be a lifelong Christian, but you're just looking for answers. And they said, you can come be part of our family. Let us care for you. What would happen if we uh, became a church with a reputation that, for putting our time, our energy, and resources into taking people who aren't Christians, who aren't disciples, who aren't followers of Jesus, and inviting them in, investing in their lives, and making them a priority in how we make decisions and how we live our lives? What if the events we plan, the activities we do, the things we, we study, or the things that are preached, the songs we sing, the words we choose. What if we were known for being deliberate about making decisions, not by what makes us feel best, but what has the greatest impact on our ability to fulfill the mission that God has given us as the church of Jesus? What if the people of Battle Creek knew that we were a church that was here for them? But the truth is that they, <laughs> they won't come, they won't feel welcome, they won't show up and ask for help if we are more concerned about our own status, our own preferences, or our own places of honor. They're not going to walk through the doors and fight us for room at the table. And so the invitation for us today, the first, the first response to this, the most, probably the most important thing, is to find your value and worth in the knowledge that Christ died for you. Right? It's not about what your title is, it's not about how much Bible you know, it's not about how much money you put in an offering, it's not about um, the words that you use, it's not about how close to the front you sit or how close to the back you sit, um, it's not about any of those things. Your value isn't based off of how much you work, where you serve in the church. Your, your value and your worth is only dictated by the fact that Jesus thought you were worth dying for. Okay? That's the first invitation. Like, just step out of the game. If you have doubts or insecurities or fears that are motivating behaviors and actions and attitudes, like, spend some time wrestling with God on this and accepting that your value and worth uh, is based entirely on the fact that Christ 
died for you. You have nothing else to prove. You belong because you are loved. You cannot earn it. Your membership in God's family is a gift. It is grace. And so we're not in competition for the head of the table. We are all sons and daughters of the king. And so that's part one. And once we do that, once we can step out of the insecurities and the fears game of trying to find validation and, and approval, then we can put others first and celebrate when somebody else is closer to when somebody else moves closer to God because they're not displacing you. It's not you versus them, it's you for them. And so, so we can put others first, we can put them in the seats of honor and see how God uses that and how God draws others into closer relationship with Jesus. So find your value and worth in the knowledge that Jesus died for you and then help others to understand that same truth. That you are welcome, you are loved, you are worthwhile, you have value because Jesus died for you.